Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Father, um, we do have a deep need for the work of your Son and the leadership and the, the involvement of your Son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. And Jesus, we need you not just to be Lord so we can have salvation, but we need you to be Lord so that we can follow someone who's doing it right and who will lead us rightly. And Lord, I, I pray that as we turn to your word that you would, um, you would open our, our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to see your plan and our need to walk with you and to celebrate what Jesus has done. And Lord, I pray that you would, as we come to your word, that you would expose any darkness in our hearts and that you'd be glorified through this time. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Imagine you invite someone into your house. And they come as a guest, but they are, we'll just say, they're less than a gracious guest. They come in and they, not only do they lack in, in what we would consider to be common politeness and uh, social norms, but they, they are actually quite destructive. And they start flipping over your furniture, yelling at you about the way you run your house. And as you're trying to get out all those special keepsakes and mementos and empty out the china cabinet before they can get to it, they actually prevent you from taking your own property out of your own house. And they are, it's like a little Tasmanian devil set loose through your home, but they're quite bossy as though they, they actually run the place as though it was actually their house. Well, if this were to happen, I'm guessing two things would be going through your mind. First, you'd be saying to yourself, this is the last time I ever invite Chuck over. <laughs> and second, you would really be asking yourself, what gives this person the right to act this way in my house? What gives them the authority to treat my things in such a way and to treat me in such a way? Who do they think they are? Well, as we get ready to step back into Mark 11, this is exactly what the scribes and the chief priests and the elders were thinking. The day before Jesus had come through, he had turned over the tables of the money changers, he had flipped over the seats of those selling pigeons, he had driven people out, he had yelled at them, he had, he had prevented them from carrying merchandise through the temple, and he taught them all quite forcibly. This, my father's house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. And so Jesus comes the next morning, and this is the scene we come to in Mark eleven twenty seven. And they came again to Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him and they said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who do you think you are, Jesus of Nazareth? Who gave you the authority to do them? And he, Jesus said to them, <coughs> I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John 
from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to them, why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really, a, really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so Jesus has come in stating the purpose of his father's house. He has disrupted. But these leaders, they saw the temple as belonging to them. This is our church. You don't just come into our church and tell us how to do things. So they meet him at the gate to find out why he, the Son of God, thinks he can do this stuff in the house of God. What gives him the right? And, and Jesus answers without answering in a way that, that tells us, the reader, a lot more about these chief priests and scribes and elders than it does about him. He tells us that they were leading, but they were blind. They're willing to posture in front of, or uh, they think that they're in charge in front of the one to whom they'll have to give an account one day. They think that they're running the show and the one that spoke the rocks into existence, the rocks that they used to build this temple, the one who will outlast this temple, they are brash and they are timid. They're willing to puff their chests in front of Jesus, but they're afraid of the people. And we'll see this again at the end of the parable Jesus is about to, about to tell, that they feared the people, perceiving that Jesus had told the parable about them, and that they were knowledgeable and ignorant. They're puffed up with knowledge, but lacking wisdom. They know what's going on in their system that they've built up, but the problem is they're in the wrong system because they're not reading Scripture correctly. And so Jesus deals with their question with a question that exposes them, as the light of Christ does, exposing our darkness too. And then Jesus gets a bit sneaky. He tells a parable. And really, in the parable, he answers the question pretty directly. And he further drives home who the teachers are and who he is as we look at these bad tenants in God's vineyard. But we need to remember the purpose of parables was to teach those who are really following the Lord and to keep those outside the kingdom in a little bit of the darkness. But the intent of this parable was seen pretty clearly. And this parable is, in, is, is really just a, a very short recounting of the Old Testament in a lot of ways, in the salvation history and the covenant history of Israel with the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's read now the beginning of Mark 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. 
a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and they killed, and him they killed. And so with many others, they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent it to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. Thank you, Alan. And give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. We're going to see a few things here as we look at the Old Testament through this parable of, of the tenants. We're going to see some things about Jesus. We're going to see some things about the, the, the scribes and, and the history of Israel. And we're going to see some stuff about us. So first of all, what I want us to see very clearly here is that the Lord planted the nation of Israel to be a fruit-producing vineyard. By now, we've seen over and over again that nothing Jesus says is at all random. Our Lord was intentional in all that he did in his earthly ministry and is just intentional now as he leads them through this parable. And he's intentional today as he leads us and he prays for us at the right hand of God. And here, Jesus telling this principle that drips with Old Testament imagery, particularly of the vineyard, this imagery refers to psalms and major prophets, even quoting some directly. And so we're going we're gonna to keep a finger in Mark 12, obviously, but we're also going to be visiting quite a bit Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5. And so go to Psalm 80. I, I cheated and put sticky notes in my Bible because I'm like that. Listen to how Israel's exodus from Egypt is described here. Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Jeremiah 2.21 calls it a choice vine of pure seed. And then in Isaiah 5, let me sing, verse 1, for my beloved, a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. 
He dug it. See if this sounds like the parable. Cleared it of stones, planted it of choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. The Lord describes Israel as this vine that he found in Egypt, that he, he knew was in Egypt, and he went and got it. He gets it out of Egypt, and he carefully transplants it in Israel, having cleared the stones, having done all the work, <coughs> excuse me, for this to, to support life, giving it fertile soil, providing a trellis for it to grow on, having a watchtower so he can see it, so he can protect it, having a vat to collect all the benefits of its fruit. This is a vineyard that is built for long-term success and fruitfulness to be protected. He didn't just start with a few grapevines. He started with the whole, the whole process put together. Having not even harvested, there's already a vat. This was built for long-term success. It's like building a Chick-fil-A. It just comes ready to be successful. It's you build it and they will come. And the Lord built this, this vineyard. You build it and it will bear fruit. It seems destined for success. Nothing could go wrong. There should be fruit year after year after year. And in looking back through the exodus, through the conquest of the land, through the law, we see that the Lord provided everything necessary for Israel to be fruitful and multiply and to accomplish what the Lord had set out for her. And we also need to look that He has done the same for us. The Lord has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He has given us His own Spirit. He has given us life. So that all we need to do is to abide in Him and we will bear fruit. And as we are looking at all that the Lord has done for this vine that He transplanted, we need to look at all that He's done for us. That the Lord has likewise carefully planted His Word in us so that it would bear fruit. And not just bear fruit one season or two, but bear a lot of fruit over a long time. And that He's built watchtowers to protect us. Giving us His Word. Giving us godly brothers and sisters to call us into accountability. Giving us this great cloud of witnesses to steer us correctly theologically so that we don't drift off. Clearing the stones. And He has made it so that when we walk in the ways of the Lord, blessing and fruit happen. And there's so much available to us. And we don't always experience that. And so we come to the next part of the parable. These bad tenants. That bad tenants arose 
and cared more for their glory than the Lord's. When the season, so he leased it to tenants, went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit. Let's say roughly a tenth. Some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another and they killed him. And many others. Some they beat, some they killed. Finally, he sends, he still has one other, his beloved son. Those tenants said to one another, let, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. The tenants cared more for their glory than they did for the fruit that was for the Lord. They cared more for their glory than for the Lord's. We're going to venture real briefly into Jeremiah 12. Sorry for all the page turning. Hope you don't get a paper cut. Jeremiah 12.10. I'm going to back up to verse 9. Is this my heritage? To me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go assemble the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation, desolate. It mourns me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. This is a real problem. In Isaiah 5, continuing on where we left off at the end of verse 2, it said, He's built a watchtower, He's cleared the stones, He's sewed out the wine vat, He looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. Jeremiah 2.21 goes on to say that this pure seed became degenerate and wild. Good vines are doing the impossible. They are producing bad fruit. And when the fruit of the world comes from godly people, it ought to give us a great level of pause and concern. There is something deeply wrong here that this choice pure vine would produce wild grapes is more alarming than the fig tree last, year, last week that looked as though it was full of life and yet it had no fruit. This is completely different. This is a vine that has produced something else. It's like going to the orchard and you walk into the row of trees, that's the Honeycrisp apples, you know the good ones, and you pick off, you go to pick off a Honeycrisp apple and it's a red delicious, the worst apple ever generated by mankind. I stand on that. How? Can a honey crisp tree produce a red delicious apple? It is genetically and scientifically impossible. And how could this good vine that the Lord brought up, that he cleared the stones, that he built the watcher, how could it produce wild grapes? The problem is not with the vineyard, but with the tenants. 
And it's those shepherds who have left it desolate. In Isaiah 5, there's this image. God says, I'm just going to lower the fences and let the wild boars wreak havoc on this vineyard. And in 5.7, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And throughout the history of Israel, we see kings and priests alike leading the people in injustice, leading the people in idolatry. And we, we get this, instead of this good fruit that's coming, this wine that's desirable, we get these wild grapes that are bitter, that are not pleasant to eat. And it's seen as the, the abuse of the people. It's seen as this unrighteousness through not just idolatry, but abhorrible acts in idolatry. As the people of Israel just want to be like the world. And the word of God is ignored when the people who bear his likeness are abused and trampled. And the Lord sent his servants. To say, the Lord needs some fruit here. The Lord needs some help here. The Lord needs some worship and some obedience. And he sends his servants to bring his fruit. And his servants are over and over and over again mistreated. They're thrown into cisterns. They are killed. They are arrested. They are persecuted over and over and over again. Because the people of Israel wanted to be like the world. And we absolutely have to guard ourselves in this. Because unfortunately, we are not that different. Where we want the world's systems. And we drift away from the Lord. And we need to guard our ears for the Word of God and not feed them with what they Itch for in the flesh. And we need to recognize that there's a decline happening within the Church of America. There's a recent study showed that 43% of evangelicals believe that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Nearly half of evangelicals Feel that God with time says, you know what, I was wrong about that. This is better information now. And that he would change to those things. 65% of evangelicals believe that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. I want you to know that that is in contradiction to the doctrinal statement of this church. That we are born with sin, both in our nature and in our will. That we are born sinful and separated from God. We need Jesus from the get-go. 56% believe that God accepts worship of all religions. Studies showed an increase in acceptance of homosexuality and an increase that the Bible is not authoritative in our lives, but just a book full of advice. 
we need to guard ourselves from, from giving wild grapes. We need to listen to those who would call us to biblical authority, to the uniqueness of Christ, to being transformed by this book instead of us thinking we can transform the Lord through our own obstinance. Theological decline will lead to a whole walk decline, which will lead to good vines producing bad grapes. This is a gradual thing. It involves multiple compromises. It points to overlooking some of the most basic instructions around watching our life and doctrine, around abiding in Christ. And our abiding in Christ, brothers and sisters, this is not a checkoff of your daily devotions so that you can earn some merit badge. This is a matter of our survival. This is a matter of us walking with the Lord and experiencing all the blessings He has to give us. We are in constant need of being redirected and we are in constant need of redirecting each other. We have studies like this men's study. That's starting going through the book of Romans. We have our women meeting. We have our adult Bible fellowships where you can not just study the word of God together, but you can enter into some accountability with other believers. You can know other believers and be known by other believers. And these are things that we need. Finally, we see that Jesus is the beloved son who has come to clean house and put the new tenants in their place. Listen to this outcry in Psalm 80. Turn again. They've talked about how the boar has come and ravished the vineyard and fed on it. Turn again, verse 14. O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. The stock at your right hand is planted. And for the son whom you have made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. (coughs) Jesus is here responding to this prayer from Psalm 80. This is God answering this prayer that people have been praying for centuries, that you would send this Son, that you have made strong for yourself, O Lord. And the tenants, they think, well, this is the Son. If we kill Him, then it'll be ours. Surely we'll inherit it. It'll all be ours. If we get rid of this pesky Son of the owner. But God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. And so in the context of the parable, Jesus has come in the full authority of the Father. And Jesus preaches this parable knowing that in just a few days, Psalm 18, Psalm 118, sorry, Psalm 118 that He quotes here will be fulfilled. Have you not read the Scripture? The Son gets rejected. 
But the son becomes the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. One thing that sometimes happens as uh, we see Old Testament quoted in the New Testament by Jesus or the apostles, particularly when they're dealing with um, confrontation from some of the scribes, is they'll quote part of it knowing that the scribes will know the next verse. And the next verse here, after this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes, is rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. I think that's right. I just, I'm second-guessing myself all of a sudden here. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There it is. This is the day the Lord has made. The, stone, the day that the stone is rejected to become the cornerstone, and the Lord has done this. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus came to fire the tenants and hire some new ones. But he came to be rejected. And so I just, in closing, I want to walk us through some of the um, some of the questions and, and maybe some of the emotions that come up in this passage just real briefly here. This all started with the teachers saying to Jesus, who do you think you are that you can just come in here and do these things? Not knowing that he's the, the owner's son. And so I want to ask that of us. Who do we say that Jesus is that he would or would not have the authority to be the Lord of our lives? Will we question what he would want to do in us individually? And would we question what he would want to do in us corporately as a body of believers? That the Lord would have full authority in this building. Not just in our lives, but in us as a corporate body of believers. The second thing is this, this parable, the, the, the whole problem with this parable is that the owner of the vineyard wasn't getting his fruit. Had the owner of the vineyard sent a messenger and that messenger came back with loads of grapes and that happened year after year after year, there wouldn't be a problem. And so are we prepared to give the Lord the fruit and the worship He is due? To say, God, here's my energy. I'm going to give it to you. I'm not going to hoard it all for myself. I'm not going to make my life about my comfort except for Sunday mornings when I'll wake up early. But I'm going to give my whole life to the Lord as a spiritual act of worship. May He receive the fruit and the glory of my life. And finally... The question that, that's ultimately posed to the teachers through this quotation out of Psalm 118 is when we look at the stone that's rejected, it's become the cornerstone, are we going to rejoice at what Jesus has done and build ourselves off of this cornerstone, 
keeping ourselves right and true? Or will we react in the same manner as the teachers who do the opposite of rejoicing, but respond in anger and fear? So are we going to submit to his authority? Are we going to give him what he deserves? And will we rejoice? I pray that we can wholeheartedly give three yeses there. But if there's some hesitation, I, want, I just want to ask why, why would there be hesitation? Why would we hesitate on the authority of Christ? What are we afraid of with that? What are we unwilling to trust the Lord with? Because I believe once we get the authority of Christ in the right place, the others are going to fall into place. They're going to they're slide into line. And so if there's something that you're really struggling with, I'd love to talk to you about that. And what does it mean to trust the Lord and to not lean on your own understanding? What does it mean to rely on His grace and know that you will receive that? Oh, may the Lord have full authority and receive all the benefits of His fruit and worship in Westchester and in our lives. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, hallowed be your name. And as we cry out for your kingdom to come and your will to be done, Lord, we pray that that would very much be in our lives. That you would glorify your name. That you would receive glory, Lord. That we would have the privilege of joining in with countless churches from around the country, around the world, in this 24-hour period of crying out to you. And as we go through the week that we know that we are with this great host of saints who are seeking to follow you. Lord, would you receive that fruit? Would you work and let us rejoice in what you have done through Jesus? Lord, that you would draw us in to be part of your vineyard. We praise you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.